0: And then you have uh, modern cities with obelisks as well and national uh, shrines dedicated not to the Christian God but to what uh, we could call civil religion, the cult of the dead soldier.
1: Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. Joining me is Dr. Mario Bagos, who is an academic sessional in the Department of Philosophy and Theology at the University of Notre Dame Sydney. He's also an adjunct lecturer, lecturer in theology in the Faculty of Arts and Education at Charleston University. He taught patristics and church history at St. Andrew's Greek Orthodox Theological College between uh, or from 2010 to 2022. That's part of the Sydney College of Divinity. And he has also lectured and tutored in the dis- discipline of studies in religion at the University of Sydney. He's the author of a book that I have not only read but reviewed called from the ancient near east to christian byzantium kings symbols and cities and that is a germane place to finish the introduction because we are going to have a conversation about the religious role function symbolism place of the city both ancient and modern or contemporary uh what comes next mario a welcome so welcome to the show (laughs)
0: It's uh it's a pleasure to be on your show, on your wonderful show, Jonathan. Thank you for uh for inviting me and um yeah, it's a good place to to start the uh the nature and role of the city. Um look, you've reviewed my book, so you know its content, and uh I'm very grateful for your your review, um, which addressed its salient themes. And I guess one of the main things that I tried to do in that book is to look at how ancient cities, through their art and architecture, recapitulated or summed up a particular inhabitant's uh, view of the world. So cities as microcosms, so the whole uh, whole universe of that particular civilization, of the inhabitants of that city in miniature, let's say, how that was reflected in the... Architectonic space, so buildings, temples, uh, palaces, monuments, so on and so forth. Um, and it was a diachronic analysis, so I looked at the uh, the first cities in history, the first cities that we know of, um, as they emerged in Mesopotamia around about, mm, let's say, oh gosh. <sighs> uh, 3,000 years before Christ, 5,000 years ago. And um, I looked at their symbolism and then went through the major civilizations in the Near East, uh, including Egypt and Israel uh, later on, uh, in order to see how these Near Eastern cities became paradigmatic for, let's say, cities that would emerge in the Mediterranean, uh, arguably in the place which perfected, let's say, the city in antiquity, which is Greece, how that, let's say, refinement of the city in ancient Greece was amplified uh, on a massive scale by Rome later on. Uh, And then I wove a thread through that coming out of uh, Israel and perceptions of Jerusalem, uh, the holy city with the temple in its center. I wove a, a thread through that which looked at the emergence uh, of Christian cities, uh, focusing specifically on Christian Rome and later on New Rome or Constantinople, which was the centre of the uh, the Byzantine Empire for over 1,000 years. So it was an ambitious project. It comprised a lot of my PhD research undertaken between the years, I started a little bit earlier, but I guess you could say formally 2012 to 2015 at the Department of Studies in Religion at the University of Sydney, and then it took me another six years to publish the thing because I worked on a lot of other projects and I tried to refine my ideas a little bit more. And so that's uh, the panoramic view of what I tried to do over that period, um, and uh, which has been in a sense distilled in my in my book from the ancient Near East to Christian Byzantium.
1: Thanks, Mario. Well, I like this notion of a panoramic view and listeners may immediately grasp something interesting going on here, which is right across different civilizations, both pagan and Christian, uh, in the ancient world, it was very common, ubiquitous, the norm, for the actual design and architecture of the city space to to have deep ontological or existential meaning, deep sacred meaning, And to really be an expression, or more than an expression either, uh, uh, merely because you do raise this issue of existential participation in the sacred and the symbolic through the cityscape. The reason why that's so fascinating is that this is a totally alien way of thinking about a city for us moderns, where I don't know about you, and we will get onto the modern, but I just want to make this juxtaposition early because just so listeners can understand how remarkable it is to try and get into this ancient mindset where uh, I suppose it's twofold, partly for a lot of uh, contemporary religious people. Religion is quite separate from the material world, certainly in the cityscape. Religion is something you go and do maybe in one specific building on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Friday, depending on your (laughs) <laughs> affiliation. About, your affiliation. But generally, even as I, as a Christian, walk around, so I live in Canberra, you know, I don't, it doesn't feel sacred and arguably I'm, I'm in the most symbolic city in Australia because there's yes. a parliament and there's some other significant buildings. There's the War Memorial, which is in a way the most civic, civil religion type building with the shrine there, although it's a it's a very Christian uh, idea. And and uh, as any Australian listener who knows the story of how Anzac arose, it, it was the brainchild of, uh, I think, originally an Anglican and maybe a Catholic bishop.
0: So it looks like a domed basilica, the yeah. War Memorial. Yeah. yeah. But,
1: but anyway, the point is, I, I don't think anyone could say about Canberra that the entire design of the city is an ontological expression of what we think about the the cosmos. Like most one cities, most of it's kind of functional. And in Australian language, it has a central business district. And that tells you something. And I know I'm jumping ahead. And so I'm going to I'm gonna say Mario, you're not allowed to respond to that. This is this is you will <laughs> <a chance laughs> you've tempted respond- me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll, have a, you'll have a chance to respond to this in due course. It's just I want want to foreshadow early why the exploration that we'll undertake of the ancient world and its cities is going to be so interesting for talking about our contemporary life because we we really are living in radically different times. Now, the panoramic view. I want, I want to before we look at a couple of interesting concepts that I've picked out, and this and I haven't. That's not a complete list, so feel free to take this conceptually wherever you you want. But I wonder if we could put a bit of meat on the bones. So you talked about, for example, the first cities in recorded history coming out of the Sumerian uh, civilization in Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Greece, Rome in their pagan incarnations, as a Christian might call it, and then also the Christian era where you have Christian Rome and then the new Rome in the east of Constantinople. I know you've done a lot of work on that. I believe you're writing, you're about to publish a book on Constantinople, if I'm not mistaken. That's Uh, right, yeah. Give us some examples, paint a picture of these cities and where this religious, sacred, ontological symbolism
0: was. Well, the, the symbolism itself comes out of, let's say, some of the studies in terms of my analysis of these cities. Because I didn't want to take a utilitarian or brick and mortar approach, an, ar- an archaeological approach per se towards analysing them, and what I discovered in the works of the 20th century historian of religions Mircea Eliade, the Romanian historian of religions, was an approach towards <clears throat> archaic and ancient civilizations that somehow brought to the foreground their desire to participate in the fullness of being and that fullness of being is described in various ways uh, eliade coined the term the hierophany the hieros in greek you know holiness the manifestation of the holy where does the manifestation of holiness take place across cultures and diachronically in these archaic and ancient civilizations? Well, it takes place in various natural environments that stimulate uh, awe, the response of wonder in human beings, and where certain persons in you know, respective religions later on uh, would claim to have encountered God or the gods. It's very clear in relation to the Hebrew tradition, Moses ascends Mount Sinai in order to encounter God in the burning bush. And, um, you know, so that's one example that we would be perhaps more familiar with. But there are many other examples across religions as well of these encounters with the sacred, with the divine in a general sense. The struggle I had in the book was to actually account for the commonality of these experiences in the pagan world and even in the Jewish context and to show how Christianity radically changed things by localizing the manifestation of the sacred in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. this Trinitarian revelation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's jumping the gun. Let's go back and look at some of these natural um, examples that...
1: Mario, can I just jump in? Because I just want to tease this out because it's very interesting. And I did find this very interesting that the... When we when we talk about the city, uh, you know, performing a kind of sacred symbolic role, it's. I know this is the point you just made. I just just want to reiterate it to so that it's crystal clear. It's not just the man-made brick and mortar buildings, but it's the construction of cities around mountains and natural. um, What would you call them? Natural phenomena features that had a sacred function so you could have a city with a sort of sacred mountain or a mountain where like you say there was some some kind of uh i'm struggling for the words because you're the one that knows the detail but (laughs) but i just want to uh i guess i should have just stuck to the very simple point that it's sometimes it's the natural features that are integrated with the the they can either be
0: they, sorry to, to interrupt you, Jonathan. They can either be deliberately integrated into the architectural space, like a sapling from the tree of Gondor, or <laughs> something more, let's say, real from the past. You know, kind of um, uh, the the founding of Rome in and around the hill where um, a skull was discovered uh, in light of an omen that pointed to the fact that Rome would be caput mundi. The head of the world, and that hill was subsequently named the Capitoline Hill. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you know, it can either be an integration of the natural into the built environment, or the built environment can imitate the natural environment through artistic design and artifice. So you can get one or the other.
1: Okay. Sorry, I was I was it was actually me that interrupted you. So no,
0: no, no, not at all. But it's good to clarify because it's actually a very nuanced uh a topic. So, I mean, at the very beginning, if you want to go back to the very beginning in uh, Sumeria, you know, 3,000 years before Christ, and the, the earliest, the, the most extant texts that we have that describe these cities and how uh, cities like Eridu, Uruk, Ur, um, the, the texts that we have that describe them as recapitulating or as a summary of, of those civilizations' vision of the cosmos through which the sacred was revealed. Don't come until maybe 1700 BC or 1800 BC, but we can take for granted to a certain extent an old tradition, a passing down of the representation to a degree, okay? So it's not crystal clear. How people were viewing these cities 1,200, 1,500 years after they were built was as recapitulations or summaries of their vision of the birth of the universe. Now, at that point, when the universe is born, the cosmogony, we call it, that's the technical word where the cosmos is born, um, that's when the gods manifest themselves. So sacredness comes into that, that birth of the universe. It's the gods who, by and large, in ancient pagan religions, shape pre-existing, inchoate and chaotic matter into an ordered, let's say, structure. And the way that they do this is by almost, look, almost across the board, uh, water is both life-giving and chaotic. That's a dual symbolism to water. And so the ancients extrapolated from their experience of the ocean, from the Egyptians' experience of the Nile River flooding six months a year, that there was a formless expanse of water and abyss at the beginning of creation before anything Ordered or meaningful or purposeful uh, emerged to contrast that chaos. And you have this perception in the Mesopotamian uh, cosmogonies, so their versions of the birth of the universe, and you have it in Egyptian cosmogonies as well that a mountain emerged or a hill emerged, representing stability, because you can stand on a hill, representing the connection between heaven and earth, because if heaven is above us, you know, you could climb up the hill and get closer to heaven. This kind of emerges out of this formless expanse. And it either happens spontaneously or a creator God who is not a creator God in the way that we understand him in the Judeo-Christian tradition or even in the Christian tradition specifically, who creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. No, this creator God is conditioned by the pre-existing material and is provoke to shape it and give it meaning and order. And that is what would become a mountain. Now, you'll say, what does that have to do with the city space? Well, have a look at ancient Mesopotamian cities. They are all temple cities built around step pyramids or ziggurats that look like mountains, Mm -hmm. unilaterally. That's everywhere in Mesopotamia. Now, these have both been described as a copy of the mountain, and you inhabit... Um, that space around the copy of that mountain. And within that copy of that mountain, you worship your gods, your creator god, your demiurge, as they were called, the Demiurgos, the maker, or shaper. Um, and in doing so, you go back to that time of origins when the gods were close to earth. In fact, the top of the ziggurats are almost like landing pads you know, for the gods to come down. Um, in order to dwell with mortals. Uh, okay, I mean, this, uh, from a Christian point of view, uh, becomes problematic because, you know, it's not for no reason that in Babylon it was the Christians, it was the, the Jews, sorry, when they were in exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC that they refined their demonology. Some of these gods are, are nasty, <laughs> nasty dudes, right? <laughs> like, a, And, you know, the exorcist begins, the film and, and the book begins with uh, Father Meron discovering the... The head of the uh, of the uh, god Pazuzu, uh, the statue, which is actually the catalyst for the possession of the young girl later on. So you know, I mean, it's not all <laughs> pristine and nice. It's quite totalitarian and heavy. But yeah, that's what the kind of thing we see happening in Mesopotamia. Egypt's a bit more benign, I would say.
1: Uh, all right. You know, just perhaps. on that point, because one of the interesting ideas in your book that that i would actually like to hear a little bit more on is when you talk about the city recapitulating the cosmos one of the interesting things is this notion of the city integrating or somehow mediating maybe that's partly the the ruler and you have this interesting concept of an ecosystemic agent maybe you could say something about that But the recapitulation involves bringing together the sort of three tiers of reality, the um, celestial, terrestrial, and subterranean, otherwise known in plain English as heaven, earth, and hell. That's a really interesting idea. Obviously, again, (laughs) you know, a million billion miles from any kind of way that we conceptualize or even think about the cities we live in today. That's a really. I thought that was really interesting. Can you elaborate a little about what what's going on there?
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, you know, we don't envisage the um, our subway systems as uh, the chthonic underworld where the rules of the realm of the dead, like Hades, dwell. You know, um, maybe we feel a bit, little bit like that when we're at Central Station or Town Hall <laughs> uh, at peak hour, but it's it's not quite um, the same thing. No, in the in the ancient world, so topography is symbolic. And symbolism for these um, ancient civilizations, it wasn't like today where we just shrug things off or shrug things off as symbolic. They're just symbolic and we dismiss them. Symbolism in, in a way that is very consistent with the etymology of the word in Greek, sin, compound word. Sin means together, valo, throw together. A symbol will point to a reality that's beyond it but will initiate participation into that reality at least on an epistemological level for those people who believe that it's real. So, you know, what people generally believed in was that heaven is above us, an equivalent of hell is below us, and the meeting point uh, on earth, on the terrestrial level, is where the sacred, because, you know, try not to think about heaven and hell in a conventional Christian sense, right? Um, These were... Uh, realms where the gods resided, whether they were above or below. So, you know, the meeting point at which heaven and hell um, came together on earth is where the sacred was disclosed, let's say. Um, and usually, in a way where people want to gather around and inhabit the space around that place um, where the sacred was disclosed, at the meeting point of heaven, earth, and hell. And these were known as. Well, Eliade coined the phrase axis mundi, centers of the world. There were centers because people wanted to um, be at a place where the three different layers of reality in a general sense met. And because the sacred, uh, the the realm of heaven or the celestial realm being the the habitation of the gods in particular, but not exclusively, um, they could be met there. They could disclose themselves there. So, now, uh, that's an axis mundi. Now, attempts were made also to, um, to let's say, through art, uh, artistic imagery, uh, sum up what that heavenly paradisal realm would look like within temple structures. And these were known as imagines mundi, or images of the world, from imago mundi, which means image of the world. And we have many examples of this sort of attempt to depict heaven, earth, and the underworld within a temple structure or a palace structure throughout ancient civilizations. Egyptian temples were precisely that. Um, they reflected uh, usually the um, the emergence of order out of chaos, as I described earlier, with the demiurge god coming out of that formless expanse, that formless watery expanse, and giving meaning and order and purpose to the world by Starting the creation at a hillock at the point of a of a hill, and um, the Egyptians extrapolated that from their experience of the Nile river, which was inundated for six months of the year and was uh receded for the other six months as it receded the devastation that it caused uh would um would dissipate, and you would see all this new life emerging, so you know the Egyptians wanted to depict all of that in their temples, but they also saw that as a space where the demiurge the creator God was present so Heaven was there. The terrestrial world was there. And in the case of the underworld, it's there in Egyptian religion. It's also very, very clear in Roman religion and in Greek religion that the underworld is a place where uh, the heroes would go. Um, It was was mapped out like a subterranean uh, cavern that literally existed beneath the countries of Greece and, and parts of Italy. So in Greece, it was known as Tartarus. And there were various caves uh, throughout Greece and the Greek islands where one could enter Tartarus, and it was a labyrinth of various canals, and you know the ferryman would take souls um, into uh, into the world of the dead, and it was um, a place that had its own laws and governed by Hades, and uh, and uh, and it had a special uh, place for it that was allocated. Uh, for the gods uh, and the demigods, uh, sorry, the demigods and the heroes, the Elysian fields, and so on and so forth. So these are all um, things that, uh, aspects of reality that these ancient civilizations tried to depict within their temples that would condition the center of their city spaces. In, in Rome, you could, they believe that in the Roman Forum, which was in the very center of the city of Rome, the symbolic center, remember Rome was considered because of its, um, Uh, of the way that it was constructed symbolically and because of the great, let's say, um, swathes of territory that it had conquered, an eternal city, Roma Eterna, and the head of the world, the Caput Mundi. So the symbolic center, the Roman Forum, uh, was very much a meeting place of heaven, earth, and the underworld. And at the Rostra, which was a speaking platform, an elevated speaking platform in the center of the Roman Forum, so the center of the head of the world, uh, they believe that you could literally enter the, enter the underworld by um, opening up a door and going underneath this platform. So, you know, this is something that Macrobius speaks about in the fifth century in his um, de- depiction of the Saturnalia.
1: Wow, that's really that's really interesting, uh, Mari. Mari, you mentioned. I'm just just trying to wrap my head around that. That's just the uh, next level the you, you you foreshadowed earlier that Christianity uh, inaugurated quite a shift in the way that uh, inhabitants of cities thought about it obviously they didn't suddenly cease to be sacred and we know about uh, just look at the Bible and there's the you know I think of just the first thing that comes to mind is Jesus symbolic entry into... Entrance into Jerusalem as the sort of unlikely king on the donkey, with the uh, people proclaiming him, and the whole Davidic imagery, and the you know the temple being torn down and rebuilt, and yeah, we can go back to the whole Solomon and the Promised Land, and it goes on, on and on and on. But um, in what uh, I'm, interesting cause I'm interested, because I'm interested, because your your book does in a way there there's an obvious continuity particularly from our perspective in that there's in some ways there's more continuity at a at a foundational level between christian cities if we can put it that way uh let's say rome and constantinople and these ancient cities in that the idea that they were sacred spaces and that they performed some function that they were more than just mere you know more than merely a convenient place to live and work as, as they often are for us that is a commonality but uh the arrival of Jesus Christ did presage a significant change and I wonder if you could tease that out for us
0: it's uh, a <clears throat> it's no uh, small feature asking me to do but I'll I'll do my best um I, I think the best segue into what jesus did in relation to the sacredness of the city space and uh, the sacredness of topography in general uh, should be related initially to an element that i haven't elaborated on but you mentioned earlier the ecosystemic agent the world shaper the king's world shaper so these um uh, ancient cities were of course built by someone and it was usually the king who built them and in building these cities with their sacred sem- uh, temples in their center temples that were meant to recapitulate um, that civilization's view of the cosmos, of an ordered cosmos through which the sacred was revealed, the king imitates the gods, and specifically the creator god, and in fact is considered uh, by and large an embodiment of that particular god. One need only think of the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. So we know that uh, in contradistinction to ancient Mesopotamia, Specifically, the Akkadian period onwards, where they have this notion of divine kingship and ancient Egyptian civilization, where the pharaohs were by and large considered divine, embodiments of Horus or or one of the other gods, Ra, for example. Um, Hebrew civilization, Israelite civilization, changes things. The king is not to be considered divine. The king is a servant of God of the one and only god Yahweh Yahweh Elohim however you want to construe it depending on the context but it's uh, the, uh, the the god of Israel um, works through the king as a mediator and the king par excellence is David of course who unites the 12 tribes of Israel at the new capital Jerusalem and uh, his son Solomon is one who builds the temple as a house within which God dwells in Jerusalem. So that's Jesus will enter into that context later on, into a context where the king is no longer God, but is certainly a paradigmatic figure. And because the Israelites had experienced periods of terrible distress, for example, um, the uh, the Babylonian exile in the sixth century. Um, the destruction of the temple uh, before that, and its rebuilding after the um, the Persians allow the the Jews to return to their homeland. Um, the the people of Israel are always yearning for a son of David, uh, a king like David, to come and reestablish the circumstances where there was one God uh, who ruled through uh, his appointed sovereign, the king, and Uh, Israel was able to worship God freely and it had sovereignty over the nations and so on and so forth. And uh, many people around Jesus' time were expecting Jesus to be that Davidic Messiah. Jesus, of course, was much more than that because not only is he described as the son of David in this kind of uh, political messianism sense, but he describes himself as the son of man, who's an eschatological figure. And the Son of Man in uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, um, which may date from the 2nd century BC, but speaks about circumstances that were prevalent in the 6th century BC, um, is a figure who stands before the Ancient of Days and to whom authority over all nations is given, not one particular nation. So all of a sudden, the city symbolism, how's it, it doesn't stand up in relation to this cosmic universal ruler the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days interpreted as God the Father. And throughout Jesus' ministry, you see certain symbols associated with the city space, the temple, vine imagery, um, the cornerstone. All of these um, symbols associated with the city and the temple as a sacred space shifted to Jesus. Even when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again, he's shifting the imagery from the temple, the place where God is believed to dwell, to his own body mm. as the Son of God incarnate. That's the real temple. Truly, I tell you, he tells you uh, he tells us in the Gospel according to St. John, a time will come where people will not worship God either in the temple or on this mountain, but in spirit and in truth. So you have this relativization of sacred space because Jesus is the embodiment of sacredness and sacrality. Um, He is crucified outside of the city gates on a sacred mountain, Golgotha. It will be considered a sacred mountain later by Christians, right? But still, that's shifting the emphasis away from the temple and away from the city of Jerusalem to uh, a place of ignominy and public disgrace, the place where you execute criminals, Golgotha, the place of the skull. So, you know, all of these things happen. Now, the emphatic example is, of course, that the crucifixion, the whole cosmos is disturbed because the Son of God, the Father, through whom the world is created out of nothing, ex nihilo. And this is a major difference between ancient pagan conceptions of the creation of the universe and the Christian uh, conception of the creation of the universe, that the world is created out of nothing. In other words, not from the locus of a particular city, but is created out of God's freedom and love, so God is anterior and before the world that he creates and he's thus eternal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these things are all relevant because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in, um, in being crucified, is the agent through whom the world is created and thus contains the world paradoxically within himself. So the whole creation suffers, the moon turns to blood, the sky becomes black, but the Curtain in the temple is torn into, so everything is transferred to Jesus. Now, uh, what happens thereafter with the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman world? You have the beginnings of the church worshipping in dom- Domus Ecclesiae house churches, right? Um, the apostles in the upper room, the examples from Duro Europos later on, and so on and so forth, but with the with the spread of Christianity amongst various ranks in um, Greco Roman society, you have patronage being given to the churches and basilicas, royal houses, which is what basilica means, um, which are usually rectangular and you know were uh, public meeting places, now being used as churches and the uh, sacred space once again re emerging. But in this period, especially from the 4th century onwards, from the end of the 3rd, beginning of the 4th century onwards, with the rise of the uh, the first Christian emperor, Constantine the Great, you get uh, the emergence of monumental Christian architecture, uh, public places of worship, uh, which kind of looks like the situation beforehand. Uh, with the pagan cities manifesting the sacred. Now you have Christian churches in the public space manifesting the sacred. But there is a difference, and that difference is that no matter the pretenses of Christian rulers from Constantine onwards to their authority, their divine right to rule, they are no longer considered gods. They can't be. Because... It was precisely because the Roman emperor was considered a god that so many Christians preferred to die worshipping Jesus Christ as martyrs rather than worship the Roman emperor as a god on earth. Because the Roman emperor, like the pharaoh in ancient Egypt, like the ancient Mesopotamian rulers from the period of the emperor Augustus, uh, during whose reign Jesus was born onwards, uh, demanded divine prerogatives to be worshipped Uh, Augustus writes in his, uh, uh, the the deeds of the divine Augustus, which are circulated as his funerary epitaph after his death, I am sacred in perpetuity. And so worshipping the emperor, every emperor from Augustus onwards was considered fealty to the Roman state as well. And Christians refused to do that. So something changes. That doesn't mean that rulers are still not Christian rulers, I mean still do not have that pretense towards totalitarianism and, you know, all the things that we would associate these days with dictatorship. Some of them did, others didn't, right? But by and large, they could no longer represent themselves as gods. Whatever they were doing, including the building of churches and everything else, was for the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father.
1: Rome, of course, is a city founded around the the hills and with a certain symbolic function in the pagan world and it's then christianized and so it's not hard to see why there is this concept of the the city having a sacred function transferring notwithstanding and you articulated it very well what i would describe as the theological change that um the christ event brings on and transferring you know the the sort of eternal king at the right hand of the Father who ascends into heaven and the whole resurrection and focusing on the body and all of that kingship imagery and allusions sometimes very explicit in the New Testament. There's an interesting interesting thing going on there where the whole notion of kingship is turned into a very unexpected and new direction.
0: Yeah, Jesus is called in Revelation the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, And these kings are all at the um, – they are drunk with the wine of the whore of Babylon, who is an embodiment of Rome. Yeah, and Those are the circumstances that prevailed um, in the first and second centuries AD when Christians were being intermittently persecuted by the Roman authorities that demanded divine honours be given to the emperor. Uh, in the in the ruler cult, so this is a great paradox. The fact that you know, the fact that the C- Christian cities later emerge is paradoxical, and in a sense, it, it shouldn't be viewed as teleological, like that was the point, mm-hmm. because it's made clear both in the Book of Revelation, which describes the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and in the book of Hebrews, that we have no lasting city. The city that Christians await is the city of God, uh, which combines paradisal imagery from the book of Genesis with um, all of the tropes and themes associated with the holy city of Jerusalem from the Old Testament, combines them, um, but places God and the Lamb, which is Jesus at their center, and it's from God and the Lamb, the Lamb also being God, because He's the Son of God, uh, from whom the waters of life flow. You know, so the, the 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 shift is is there that you know you might have your Christian cities later on, but they are a means to an end. Let's say you know you to go to your churches and worship and participate in the sacraments, and you know these Christian cities would be full of examples uh, of let's say uh, of symbols and of and of art that was supposed to inspire the inhabitants to participate in the life of Christ and his his heroes, the saints. So these were both within churches, but they were also in the public thoroughfares, um, you know, uh, frescoes and and, and mosaics depicting Christ and the saints and the crucifixion and and so on and so forth. Paradoxically, in Constantinople, you had these sorts of new Christian images uh, existing side by side with uh, the panoply of ancient Greco-Roman statues, uh, you know, depicting uh, Hercules and uh, Zeus and, and all of that, because part of the symbolic where, there was to show that Constantinople had superseded previous civilizations in terms of its uh, authority as as the new Rome, the new capital of the empire. But I think within that civilization, within uh, the civilization of the, the Christian Roman Empire, they did have this developing sense that, okay, all of this statuary that belongs to our Greco-Roman inheritance is to be appreciated as art for art's sake, but this new imagery uh, should be venerated and, uh, let's say, contemplated uh, as a way of leading us closer to Jesus. You you do get this sense because, you know, contrary to popular belief, I mean, uh, it happened in some places where Christians went and, you know, They took some revenge on the pagans by destroying their temples and and everything else. But by and large, uh, they they preserved um, a lot of things. I mean, the the marble friezes on the Parthenon, which became a Christian church in the 6th century AD, depicting the mythological exploits of Hercules and various other demigods and gods, they remained on the Parthenon while it was a functioning Christian church dedicated to the Virgin Mary. You know, in Constantinople, the Golden Gate was full of frescoes depic- depicting uh, Hercules' uh, 12 labors. Um, so what's this anti-pagan sentiment? I mean, there was some of that, but, you know, whereas the pagan uh, rulers put Christians uh, to death, maybe the Christians enacted some legislation against them and, and that's it. But by and large, they took the good out of that, that kind of old world and, and reshaped it and reformed it.
1: Mario, why don't we start to wind our way into the contemporary? And the obvious mediating point has to be the Reformation because there's a kind of reaction to symbolism uh, here that most Christians who know any history <laughs> will will know about. The, I remember my, when I lived in... Uh, Cambridge for a year when I was 10 in the 80s my father was uh, doing doctoral work on William Paley that's a whole nother story but anyway I lived in England for a year and went to school in Cambridge and at the end of that time we went on a massive trip all over the United Kingdom and I remember going to these churches and my father showing me the kind of wing that used to be dedicated to the Virgin Mary that was just like this empty shell now because they just stripped it all smashed you know the Protestants had, had gone in and just uh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like demolished all of the, the, uh, the idolatrous images and the like. So, we don't need to recount the story, that's just a sort of personal anecdote of when I first discovered this side to Protestantism that was very evident in the UK in a way that's not in Australia because our churches <laughs> don't go back that far. But, yeah. uh, what In your view, what does the Reformation do to the place of the city, its connection to the sacred, and particularly in this Christian context?
0: Well, the Reformation represents a bit of a perfect storm in terms of shifting the emphasis in the city space away from the kind of sacred art and architecture that we've been talking about up until now. Because what happens there, at least, is the emphasis of figures like Martin Luther and others on sola fide and sola scriptura. So faith alone, which is an internal sort of thing, uh, based on the written text of the Bible, who he was a pioneer in translating into the German vernacular, and and so on and so forth. So um, with the printing press uh, that came afterwards, you had this kind of immediate access to the word of God that was being, um, let's say, pro- proliferated at the time throughout the population in, in Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, and various other places. Um, if you add the layer on top of that, that the uh, the reformers were reacting against some of the excesses of Roman Catholic uh, of the Roman Catholic Church of the time, and trying to, let's say, initially reform the Catholic Church from within, but eventually breaking off into into their own, uh, let's say, emerging churches or denominations, a way of defining themselves in opposition to the Catholic Church that had been prevalent throughout Western Europe and, in fact, a stabilizing force in Western Europe for about a 1,000 years, maybe even longer, but certainly since the time of the Dark Ages in the 5th century, is to say, okay, you have statues, we don't want statues. We just want our scriptural texts. Okay, now we've got them. We don't need a mediator to interpret them for us. That's it. And so a way of, let's say, justifying the removing of public imagery, of course, in um, the Roman Catholic world, especially since the Renaissance, um, it was uh, statues that predominated um, because of the retrieval of Classical Greco-Roman aesthetics that took place in the Renaissance. Obviously, uh, Christ and the Virgin Mary and the saints were depicted in statuary uh, and in statue form, and that's something that you'll see at any local Catholic church today. Um, Our local Catholic church here has a wonderful statue of the Virgin Mary and um, Christ crucified and so on and so forth. Um, In the uh, Byzantine East, iconography was the main um, form of artistic and uh, let's say, um, pietistic expression in terms of art. Uh, and that remained the case for the Byzantines for quite a while. But in the Catholic uh, world, the um, statuary took over whilst the iconography remained. And it, it's there. You can go to Italy. You'll see Ita- in Italian churches like Santa Maria Maggiore, Santa Maria in Trastevere, and so on and so forth, wonderful Byzantine mosaics from the 12th, 13th centuries, Um, Because of the contacts in terms of maritime contacts between Constantinople and Rome and other places in Italy around that time. But then they give way to the kind of humanistic expressions of and depictions of Jesus and Mary that we see in Renaissance art art by figures like Michelangelo and Raphael and so on and so forth. Of course, you can't have a Michelangelo in every church. You make a statue. And you put Christ in there, okay? So you know the, the reformers didn't want any of that. And you see, as you, as you mentioned, it, uh, where Calvinism took off in particular in places like Scotland, Presbyterian churches. Um, you see alcoves at the top of churches above the entrance into the nave, which would have once had a statue of a saint, now empty. Um, and this is this is part of the Re- Reformation's reaction um, and and part of its process of uh, defining itself in opposition and opposition to the Catholic Church. But at the same time, you have John Calvin's doctrine of double predestination, which enters into the picture. And, you know, I'm probably not going to do it much justice here, but it's something like God knows who will be saved and who won't be. So who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell? And uh, because there's no way uh, that we'll be able to find out in this life, let's get busy and work. And the means of production in countries which embraced the Calvinist uh, reforms um, surpassed levels the world had ever seen before. And Max Weber, um, you know, very insightfully uh, pointed to this phenomenon as the beginnings of modern capitalism because of the excess production of goods, which were later um, given an exchange value and so on and so forth. So, you know, the the city will become more and more functional from this point onwards. You need places where you can produce, um, you know, whatever it is that you're producing, whether whether it be... um, uh, clothing or food products or, um, you know, material to build chips or whatever it is, you know, certain large sections of the city space will be dedicated to this sort of industry. And that grows and grows and grows, and it takes on a life of its own. What compounds these circumstances is more or less the internecine strife between Catholics and Protestants in the European continent, Right. And that will fatigue Western Europeans to such an extent that philosophers like John Locke and later on Adam Smith in his Wealth of of Nations will say, look, as um, various uh, uh, countries are uh, developing a self-identity in terms of what would become the nation state and they are simultaneously drawing on ideas coming out of, and this is because of the Reformation, and um, and the Renaissance before it. They're drawing on ideas coming from classical Greece in relation to democracy and everything else. They're marginalizing the role of their kings because they believe that everybody should contribute somehow to the governing of a country and the emerging nation state and so on and so forth. They are going to begin to marginalize the role of churches, generally any church, in the public organization of a given nation-state and, of course, the capital cities. And and this will mean that, practically speaking, or topographically speaking, in terms of what happens on the ground, new cities will not have churches in their center the way that Paris did, you know, mm-hmm. Notre Dame Cathedral, the way that, you know, Rome would kind of... or it, Although it had its old symbolic center, the Forum, uh everything gravitated around St. Peter's. And in a, in a way, it still does. I mean, Rome is dominated by St. Peter's uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Aachen uh, in Germany had its uh, cathedral in the center. No. Now, um, as the centuries progressed, a replacement would be needed. So we've moved from the 16th century to about the 18th in this discussion, in this summary of what was taking place. Um, By the time you get to the 18th century and you have the marginalization of the roles of various denominations, Catholic and Protestant in both Europe and the new world in America, eventually um, I think for the most part, the founders of new cities realized that they couldn't found their cities without some kind of foundational narrative. And so You know, a lot of these people belong to sects like Freemasonry and everything else, which drew upon the panoply of symbols coming out of Judeo-Christian, but also pagan religions like Egyptian religion and Greek religion and so on and so forth. And they began to rehabilitate a lot of these classical forms that never went away in Christendom. They were there. Obelisks, you'll find obelisks, um, which are part and parcel of contemporary cities because of the role the obelisk plays in Freemasonry. You will find obelisks in Constantinople in the sixth century in the tenth century. You'll find them in Rome. You know they never went away because they were just pillaging them from Egypt because it was a a sign of the dominance of cities like Constantinople and Rome to go to an even more ancient civilization and say, "Look, we can take their stuff and plonk it into the center of our city spaces so you know, But then you have uh, modern cities with obelisks as well and national uh, shrines dedicated not to the Christian God but to what uh, we could call civil religion, the cult of the dead soldier because mm. now you don't have temples and uh, churches dedicated to Christ and the saints, whether it's the Virgin Mary or St. George like in Thessaloniki, um, the Cathedral of St. George in Thessaloniki being the central, let's say, uh, building. Um, Uh, You you don't have uh, these sorts of Christian churches in the center. Um, People still need their heroes. Uh, They still need their foundational stories. And so the new foundational stories for these emergent nations, what would become the United States and other places, are those who have lost their lives in war, sacrificing themselves, serving the nation. That comes to play in relation to the Anzac legend as well later on in Australia and so on and so forth.
1: So Mario, there's there's still plenty of symbolism even in pretty modern cities like Washington DC is awash in symbolic monuments and design and to some extent, but a lesser extent, you see it in Canberra, which was only founded in, I think, 1913 from memory. So this is a very young city and it is not just in the buildings you've got the whole parliamentary triangle design and if you're staying in parliament you're looking straight down towards the war memorial over Lake Burley uh, Griffin but I it was interesting earlier when you mentioned I can't remember exactly how you articulated but you said something along the lines of the the symbolism to some extent, requires belief in it in order to point to that reality <laughs> beyond the the material. And in some ways, when you live in these cities, particularly today, I wonder if for most inhabitants the symbolism just disappears. The symbolism is more obvious to the visitor in some ways. So. If you've lived in Canberra for over 20 years, like me, I mean, you've been to the War Memorial a million times and at the end of the day, it's just another building. That's not to say it it, it isn't extremely evocative. And if you do go into the shrine, there, it is a powerful uh, experience, I think, where the Tomb of the Unknown sh- Soldier is. And it is a kind of spectacular oh, uh, site. But, but of course, when you drive past it every day, then you're just, in the end, it has, it can the that symbolic power can kind of wear off because our actual cultural lives don't revolve anymore really around anything symbolic and so i just wonder what your perspective this is just as a, an entree into the mon city and trying to understand what it is and what its function is and how we think about it
0: Well, I think you've pinpointed it there when you said that culture no longer revolves around symbolism, because for these, I mean, what I've delineated uh, for you so far might sound passive, like these structures were built, you know, at the center of cities in order to recapitulate the inhabitants' vision of the cosmos. And, you know, you move from this kind of uh, manifestation of the sacred, of the Demiurges and various other gods to the disclosure of the Christian God through Christ in Christian churches as they emerged in Christendom but actually people were going to these churches daily there were daily feast days if not dedicated to Christ then to one of the saints there are at least 12 dominical feasts in the traditional churches at least in the the orthodox church there are 12 feasts dedicated to Christ himself But then there are feasts dedicated to the Virgin. There are feasts dedicated to the panoply of saints, Joseph, uh, George, uh, uh, Basil the Great, so on and so forth. And I'm only speaking now about the Eastern Church. The Western Church has even more uh, saints that that were venerated. And so these public feast days, whether you're speaking about, like this morning, you know, it's Ash Wednesday. I went to church, participated in the Mass uh, that, punctuated my mundane week of work, let's say. It was a participation with the community in the act of uh, preparing for, well, the beginning of Great Lent and the preparation for Christ's crucifixion in 40 days' time and his resurrection on the third day at Easter. But there will be other services, apart from the weekly Sunday Mass, there'll be other services interspersed throughout. And so that sacred space Um, or those sacred spaces, the churches need to be actualized through participation. And when the calendar that a civilization abides by is not secular but is punctuated by feast days, um, the rhythms of the city, uh, let's say, uh, lend themselves to participation in symbols and sacrality in a way that it doesn't for us moderns because when we privatize the church buildings, we privatize the church calendar as well. That can be seen in everything from moving away to uh, moving away from BC and AD in our textbooks to before Common Era and Common Era uh, to the fact that we have a lot of secular uh, equivalents of feast days. We mm-hmm. still call our holidays holidays. It comes from holy days when we take time off. But you know, we watch the Footy, or, and that's fine. I'm not not criticizing these things, but Definitely these are all on the level of the profane, not understood in a negative sense. Eliade would call it that, you know, or the mundane, you know. They do not lend themselves to the realm beyond the material or the terrestrial. There are no axes mundi here or imagines mundi. And I think that the project of the founders of new cities after the marginalization of churches and Christian dominations in the city space and the Beginnings of what will be the final takeover of free market capitalism in the city space, which we haven't spoken about yet, right? But in that interim, you have an attempt by city founders to create new narratives based on something that would have been prevalent in the ancient world as well, but it was much more powerful in the ancient world because all of the soldiers and heroes that were venerated in the public space were also divine. Okay, when Washington D.C.'s um, Capitol building was built, again, Capital, it's called Capitol O-L, right, in order to mirror the Capitoline Hill in Rome. The dome of the Capitol building at the end of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. looks like the Temple of Vesta. The Temple of Vesta in the Roman Forum was the place where the eternal flames were kept by the Vestal Virgins, and the symbolism of the Eternity of that flame. Uh, it, it was that it pointed to Rome's permanent endurance. If it was ever, if it was ever to go out, it would spell disaster for Rome. Okay, there are no fires in the Capitol building in Washington D.C., but on the underside of the dome, there is a fresco painted by I think a Italo-Greek painter in the late was it in the 19th century of the apotheosis, the divinization of George Washington. You can paint this in a romanticized way. Did anyone actually believe that George Washington was taken up to the realm of the gods after he died? In the way that the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans believed that either Alexander or Julius Caesar were taken up to the realm of the gods after they died? No. These were people conditioned by Christian sensibilities for so many generations, irrespective of their participation in secretive fraternities with the mixture of symbolism within them, right? So, you know, it's like, okay, it's romantic idealism at the end of the day. Hmm. And only a certain amount of people are able to see it. And, you know, a a nation can only have so many battles that it can celebrate as well. I mean, uh, Anzac Day is, is, is an important celebration in the Australian narrative and consciousness, but it only happens once a year.
1: I want to actually say something about that. Yeah, go ahead, Mario. I've got a whole bunch of observations that I might just vomit onto the table, and you can <laughs> you because that that there's, there's so much interesting stuff here. But I, I had that exact thought listening to you speak about Anzac Day because just to go back to your very first point, you know, it just made me it really made me realise, and this this is harder as a Protestant to put to get into the. The sort of mindset that, you know, if I were an inhabitant of Constantinople in ten hundred, then it's not just a bunch of buildings that you go to on, on Sunday. That the sort of Christian life of the city through its architecture and its buildings and its art is daily. It's pervasive. It's it's in a way the air you breathe. As you move around the city, you're seeing you're reminded of christian symbols everywhere you go whereas and interestingly i thought you know the kind of uh uh you know ecclesial life you are participating in mario mirrors that to some extent because you've got you've got in the the catholic and eastern orthodox traditions you can you can go to church pretty much almost every day, right? There's, there's stuff going on all the time. But that is still, at best, going to be a pretty smallish subculture in your Australian or American or Canadian city because most people are not participating even on the Sunday. That's right. And so the, this kind of life sits within this larger life that as you drive around the C B D is not really evoking Christian imagery because that that imagery no longer symbolizes who we are as a culture and as a people. And I think I mean my my sort of Christian view is that all people are inherently religious and have a kind of religious desire, a desire for the divine and the transcendent. And they even when when the when the god you and I believe in is rejected perhaps not immediately but the human will sacralize other things because it's just we know from the the earliest remnants of humans that that and and a lot of uh, atheists don't seem to really grasp this point or the significance of it that religion just seems to emerge with human uh, certainly with civilization but it even seems to go back way earlier there is, i mean this it gets difficult here, because you're sort of reading the way people are buried and and stuff. But yeah, put it this way: religion is pervasive and just seems to be one of the one of the most oldest and intrinsic elements of the the human experience. And so, absolutely, the Anzac Day in Australia is the closest thing we have to a civil religion, and which is kind of paradoxical given it was started with. Exp- explicitly out of a kind of Christian consciousness and sensibility. Uh, it didn't start in a kind of secular context. And you, it's enjoying something, perhaps renaissance is not the right word because that suggests a return to something something that may have been. But it's certainly been building. And you think about all of the elements. There, there's, or at least there was until recently, a pilgrimage where a whole bunch of youngsters would go and get drunk in the actual... <laughs> Gallipoli, but that still had a lot of symbolism and that was of course. a sort of important... Look, they I mean, probably I got drunk... I shouldn't belittle it
0: like that, no, but I mean... but they probably got drunk at some of these Christian feast days as well in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's what people do, right? I mean, not everybody's there for pious reasons. That's,
1: well, yeah, and, and I think some of the Anzacs probably probably enjoyed a, a beer, but... That's right. Uh, uh, but the point is, there's, there's this kind of pilgrimage and then the dawn service around shrines all over Australia which is a very religious-like, Christian-like ceremony. You know, just more and more people are flocking to that. And then there's the big national thing with the marches and the, yeah. the shrine. But this is a very long way of... So I could have just said I agree with you, but I just wanted to sort of articulate no, it that, yeah. that the interesting thing is, although in some ways the Anzac civil religion I think is... Bigger than any Christian event, in in, it's sort of, uh, to some extent nominally, you know, more Australians participate that in every state and territory. But apart from it's one big day once a year in April, it doesn't actually govern the rhythm of life and its symbols, whilst they exist in every city, they're not the dominant symbols, I would say. So as you're moving around Sydney, you're not thinking... You're not getting Anzac, 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 unless you pass the, what is there? There's an Anzac shrine, I think, in Hyde Park or yeah. wherever it is. There's an equivalent down in, in Melbourne. And so they, they don't fully replicate that old Christian symbolism, which much more tangibly and regularly governed the life of the city and was central to the way it was organized to some extent. And... This has to have something to do, Mario, with the fact that we've developed something called the skyscraper and particularly yes. in the Australian context because we, we, we were settled relatively recently in history. We didn't have these sort of uh, ancient centres of the city so we could just whack these massive buildings up. And so that that's naturally the dominant visual symbolic part of the city is the commercial district now i don't know what people get from from that because i think one of the things in a in a contemporary city is that you can can take a very utilitarian materialistic view so you could just say well mario what is sydney to me it's a convenient place to live and work there's a lot of jobs i have access to all the services i need there's a school for my kid to go to there's a couple of universities there's a number of hospitals sure people might complain about the services here there's public transport there's an international airport there's a there's a a port there's lots of entertainment things i can go to the rugby league i can go to the cricket there's a music scene there's entertainment there are these massive shopping centers and that's it full stop it's it's purely a bunch it's about um Accessibility and convenience, and really nothing more. It means nothing more to me. Sure, the harbour's pretty, and you know there's some some funky buildings like the Opera House and the uh, the Harbour Bridge. And you know, when I drive over at occasion, I think you know it's a pretty cool bridge, but doesn't mean anything to me beyond the material
0: yeah you you point to a whole a whole range of interesting uh factors that condition the contemporary civic space you know part part of the um the problem with the marginalization of uh, of religious institutions in the topography of the city was that that space needed to be filled and i think the attempts of the modern city founders people who founded places like you know Washington DC or or uh, New York or you know, or even Sydney, um, you know, that they made this attempt, well, at least in the American examples that I gave, they made this attempt to infuse the city with this kind of repackaged Greco-Roman symbolism. I mean, the National Mall in, in Washington, D.C. is full of dome structures that look like they've been transported out of either Constantinople or Rome, you know. They, they utilize uh, Doric and Ionian and Corinthian columns, which are taken out of classical Greece in their construction. But ultimately, because the narrative that underpinned a lot of these, let's say, architectural designs and features and and this art um, had died for the most part with the advent of Christendom, they couldn't be resurrected. So another thing that was taking place, uh, which i hinted at before, was the emergence of this kind of free-market capitalism that became a dominant force in political life and would shape the city space um, in a way which has led to the let's say concrete manifestation of this sort of of the backbone of this sort of free market economy which is you know um, industry for the I mean initially it's industry and in industrial spaces, but ultimately it's this uh let's say the materials are redeployed as skyscrapers uh, which don't connect heaven and earth but which scrape the sky so this is an example of the emergence and the reification of a man centered world instead of a god centered world mm. in ancient civilizations and in Christendom, man is seeking God and is responding to the revelation of the gods or God in their, let's say, construction of sacred space within the city space. And the symbolic center of the city is the place where, you know, the temple will be or the church will be, and that's where you'll go and participate in, you know, a world beyond this one, okay? But with the marginalization of those spaces, um, what's left is my initiative as a human being, and, and, and that, that goes hand in hand with the rise of anthropocentrism, you know, um, uh, in the Enlightenment with the emphasis on reason and the practical outcomes of reason, which is to build more stuff, to do more with engineering, uh, to be bigger and better at everything in terms of the, pla- the practical applications of the, of the rational and mathematical mind. And also the philosophical pushing of God away from the affairs of human beings. Now, it's not for no reason that the founders of the modern cities, uh, Freemasons and others, I just refer to Freemasons because it's clear that some of them were, Now others weren't, but generally speaking, they were deists. They believed in an Aristotelian like God who was not involved in the affairs of human beings but was out there, gave us our rational mind. This was the, the way that Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and D- Diderot thought, gave us our rational mind to deploy it in a way that, would make life better for us on earth, nothing more to be said until we die. No sacred calendars, no need to go to church every week, let alone every day. So the concrete outcome of this will be that the symbols that they deployed uh, right after the fading away of Christendom from the public space, which are the civic religion ones, are also not working. So what takes their place? Well, it's the outcomes of human industry and free market economy, free market capitalism. The glass and metal that we've been able to produce will go into our skyscrapers where we'll have our offices that are producing, let's say, the... um, or applying the exchange value to goods that we're going to buy and sell and so on and so forth. And we're going to advertise these products that we're producing because we are going to place a monetary value on them in order to sell them through a new kind of symbolism, which has always been there but is now, you know, totally uh, dominating the central business districts, which are at the center of, of modern cities where business is done, this sort of you know um, applying value to goods and selling them both on a domestic and international level, right? And what are those new symbols going to be? Coca-Cola, McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get you to buy them because we're interested in your money because this is what we're, we've become uh, consumers. That's the way we identify ourselves now, right? In the eyes of big business, which conditions – the center of cities, you and I consumers. But in order to get us to buy them, these goods which are material and let's say which only nourish um, basic instincts that you know are important for us, but they're not like you know contemplating God. They're like, you know, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. We'll have a Coke, and here's a beautiful woman to present the Coke to you so that we make this subconscious association between you know an attractive uh, woman and the product implying if I had one, I might have the other. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's all, it's, it, it, it's a different world. It's a world which, you know, to do, to use traditional language and I'm not disparaging it all together. You know, like uh, I, I, I pull into Mickey D's whenever I see the golden arches and driving down the freeway, I'm the first person to go and get a big Mac, but right, this can't be all there is. And so, you know, uh, it's, it, is,
1: um, it is a type of national symbol in Australia, even though it's an American company.
0: Oh, 100%. There,
1: there is something about Maccas that is, um, that is. I think, to me, one of the most powerful symbols, probably because we fall in love with it as children. And so, in, in a way, we're catechized into the the cult of Ronald McDonald. But can, <laughs> I, can, can I just say, <laughs> I just want to add something. I, I think... Um, I really like this idea of the modern inhabitant of a city as consumer. I don't like it in the sense of I think it's great, but I think that's got enormous explanatory power. And that's a major shift because, of course, in the ancient world, the inhabitants really didn't have the means to consume the kind of goods that could create that kind of market economy. And of course most of the building projects, and I think you alluded to this earlier, you know, they were bankrolled by the the king or the royal family and or the church later, which had the, the means and then even just the cost of doing that. But I I guess two things come to mind about the modern city, just to articulate a bit more detail here, just as I'm thinking out loud, is that sure. on the one hand you have property developers and then you have regulators, namely the government. Now the interesting thing is that the property developers are looking at returns so on investment. So they're looking at okay, this is a good property, and I can I can buy the land for this much, we can build this here, and we could sell them for this much, and it's a good investment, so it's good for shareholders and the like. And then the regulators, you know, in the property domain. Assuming they're not corrupt, because there's a bit of corruption in this. This is one of the few areas where I think there is a little bit of corruption, certainly at the local state level in in Australia, <laughs> if I may say so. But again, because of the the money at stake, you know, we yeah. love to make money out of property. They're looking at uh, utility, you know. So, what's it going to do to traffic? Is there good access to the building? Is it going to create shading over this other thing here? Is it going to block this? view do we have access to transport we'd rather you know we're going to regulate the height of the building and we're going to dictate all kinds of things right down to the aesthetic level and the process now the interesting thing about that and there might be more to it but generally i would say the the shape of the city is a consequence of lots of different developers and the various regulations and the regulatory decisions about what what can go ahead is neither is thinking of the the recapitulation of the cosmos or the mediation of heaven, hell and earth or the religious or even non-religious national symbolism of the place with the one exception of the parliamentary triangle area in Canberra, which some listeners may not be aware is under the control of a federal government agency, not the ACT government. But even there, they seem mostly concerned with aesthetic me although it kind of has a slightly higher order purpose which is the idea is it's the national capital therefore it should you know the way it looks should be sort of nice and capital capitally you know yes yeah <laughs> was designed by an American from Chicago who probably I think was probably influenced to some extent by the by Washington DC and it was a planned uh, city of course but uh, that' That, that to me means, and, and I, I'm just riffing off what you are saying, that the, the things that are driving the shape of the city is 100 miles from a religious culture. But not only is it 100 miles from a religious culture, but it doesn't really seem to be driven by anything beyond the material and really pragmatic things. Like I said, you know, whether the building is going to be too tall and cash, you know undesirable shade over the neighboring properties or whether there's access to public transport.
0: These are the practical outcomes of enlightenment rationalism, you know, a couple of hundred years on because, you know, uh, the the sort of uh, intellectual uh, vanguard, the intelligentsia that um, got sick of the, uh, let's say, uh, continual squabbles and violent squabbles as well between um, the various Christian denominations and and whatnot on the continent. So I did not want to export these things uh, elsewhere. So they look towards the rational mind, as I mentioned earlier, as as being uh, a utility in and of itself. Um, But not everybody's a philosopher. So even that will degrade and degenerate at some stage. And what we're left with is a system that gives us what we want and what we desire on a base level, with minimum effort in terms of the symbolism I was speaking about before because that symbolism, whether it's Mickey D's or Coca-Cola, still points to a reality and initiates participation in it, but it's it's a reality that rebounds on itself because it goes as far as my belly.
1: <laughs> well, not right? quite as far as the belly, but... No yeah, fair. well, We're I hope Marcus isn't, isn't
0: staying for two, you know... <laughs> you know. It's my, you know, every time I have it, my belly grows, but um, it goes as far as there. So within that kind of an environment, you can understand that, you know, again, why I'm speaking about enlightenment rationalism, because enlightenment rationalism, of course, uh, led to developments in engineering, which fed industry, right? And the general scientific emphasis on empirical observation, which, you know, fast forward a couple of hundred years. uh teaches you how to quantify how to qualify materials how to arrange space in the most cost effective and efficient way it's all an outcome of the kind of thinking that was going on a couple of hundred years ago with Isaac Newton and others right but now our motivating force to apply this kind of thinking because it's not as if they didn't have engineers in the 6th century who the heck built Ayia Sophia? holy wisdom in istanbul god knows how tall it is it's a hundred meters off the ground that dome and it stood for 1400 years they had good engineers 1500 years ago they did we have good engineers well it's arguable today to an extent (laughs) if you look at some of the uh, apartment blocks in sydney that are that are cracking everywhere but again motivated by cost not to do the job properly in Mm. those cases you know so it's it's the free market economy that let's say and I Look, I'm not against uh, – I'm not a Marxist, okay? So basically, uh, I, I'm i contrasting it to the way things were. And I think I, from an idealized golden age kind of perspective, things were perhaps better for our spiritual, psychological well-being in the Middle Ages. But they also didn't have penicillin or toilet paper. So, you know, like you've got to take your goods and your bags. Or Macca's. Or Maccas. We have a compartmentalization of space in the modern shape of the city, which, as you mentioned earlier, will allow you if you want to. You go to St. Mary's Cathedral, you could go to the war memorial. Take pick your poison. You can go to a, you know, the footy match, you can go shopping, whatever. But the thing is, the transcendent does not act as an overarching framework to give us something to look beyond actively and consciously.
1: You know what um, I think the point is, Mario? Tell me. In our cities, you have to go looking and looking really hard for the yes. Transcendent. 100%. In a way that it, you didn't have to go looking for it in these ancient cities. And I think the larger point that I take away from from this, and it is very interesting, is that it just shows you that the space in which you live, and I should just say, um, I mean, I'll take convenience. <laughs> <laughs> Quite frankly, over living in Constantinople, personally. Oh, same so, here. I mean, you know, as well. It's not yeah. that that's unimportant, but but this is the important point that the the type of city environment you live in it does form and shape you, and it does shape your imagination. And so, in a symbolless, symbolless—that's a terrible word—in a city without symbolism. Without religious symbolism, uh, is going to orient your mind, arguably even your heart. Mm. And it's not just no a lack of certainly coherent symbolism, but it's all those other things. So it's it's the consumerism, it's the commercialism, it's yeah. the individualism, the materialism. That in its own Way is a kind of ontological expression yes. of what we believe, which is a form of naturalism, really. There is nothing beyond literally the building. So if there is nothing beyond your material existence, then things like comfort and efficiency naturally rise to the to the top. Yeah. Like what higher good is there in terms of how you organize your city?
0: Well, that's what most people look for and prioritize. And the advertisements that we see on television and on billboards and everything else, they're directed at that. That's what they want to engage in, comfort, pleasure, um, and efficiency. But there will come times in our lives, and God allows these things to happen, where we'll be given an opportunity to reflect on whether or not there's something more, and usually that's a time of crisis. Thank God, and thankfully, there are those sacred places in Sydney and modern cities Churches that we can go to to seek out this deeper symbolism uh from a more emphatically Christian point of view to seek out the Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon his name, his salvific name you know thankfully these things are there, and you know we shouldn't take that for granted that's part of our of the inheritance of Western civilization, not to mention and not to preclude the the right and also the uh, the inherent good in, you know, Muslims going to mosque and Jews going to synagogue, I think one of the great achievements of modernity when it works well is that we can coexist within these spaces and, and people can seek out um, their meaning in in such a way, irrespective of whether or not I believe Jesus is the true God, um, you know, that that shouldn't uh, be an imposition on, on anybody else. So that's a good thing, but it's not at, the forefront of our experience what's at the forefront of our experience is all these things that we mentioned that are more or less mundane and which will not satisfy what you mentioned earlier that yearning for God that each and every human being has because as Eliade put it we are omines religiosi we are um, religious humans and and that seems to be a condition of our consciousness that if it's not going to be God it's going to be something else an idol that we're going to replace God with that will be the object of our devotion and worship. It could be love. It could be avarice. It could be greed. It could be food. It could be whatever it is. So, you know, uh, do I love uh, Christendom in spite of all, all of its uh, foils? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, there are remnants of it in the modern cities, and, and this is perhaps what people like you and I who are trained, um in some kind of a knowledge about, you know, Christianity and Christian symbolism, can do to make people aware, as we are doing now, about the existence of these places. So, if you're looking for Jesus, you can go and find him, and you can find him in a way that suits your sensibilities. If it's uh, a Protestant church or a Catholic church or an Orthodox yeah. church, you can go and find him, and hopefully, he'll be the one leading you there. You know,
1: he can be a religious consumer, after a manner of speaking. It's interesting because the that, that religious pluralism actually only works, or well, well, not only works, but it one context in which it works quite well is in a city that doesn't have an overarching, yeah, religious uh, symbolism or yeah. language articulated in its architecture and and its structure. It's a lot; it would be a lot more difficult to be one of those three religions in a place where the other religion was. Staring you in the face, down every single.
0: Historically, was but but historically it was. That's why we had the marginalisation of religious minorities in all civilizations. It was the Christians first. Was Jews in some Christian cities later on? You know, I mean, this is part and parcel of what happens in the fallen human condition. And let's not forget that the city, because we said earlier, and let's return to this point that. As Christians, we have no lasting city, but we expect the city of God, which is to come with the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, the city in, in Genesis is described as a result of the fall. The first okay. uh, constructor of the city, was it Cain?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, the murderer. Yeah.
0: The murderer, the first the murderer, murderer. of his
1: brother. Yeah.
0: The murder of his brother. And also Babel is the first city that's described at some length, and that's an yeah. affront to God the nature of that city. So in a fallen world, we Christians are doing the best with what we can. It's not a matter of this is going to be the ideal situation. It probably wasn't the ideal situation in the Middle Ages, and it isn't now. But within that, where can we find these symbols that lead us, you know, facilitate this closeness to God? I mean, that's...
1: That's often why I've wondered, Mario, whether the modern city is like a blinker that obscures God for a lot of people versus living out in nature where you can, for starters, see the, yeah. the cosmos in the sky, which is pretty yeah. hard in a, in a large modern uh, city, but also you you lose a sense of the relation between the human being and nature in a city because the human being is everywhere and dominates the landscape and the the product of the human being quite literally dominates the the skyline and you might have some nice natural features but of course if you go out to a a mountain you if you walk up that mountain you can rediscover something of the that ancient experience of being a very small part of a very large earth in a enormous cosmos as you look up to the, the stars at the peak of a mountain that you've labored to get up the top of.
0: Well, the secular, um, you know, uh, sort of new atheists and popular uh, science guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, they're all over this kind of stuff. You know, they're trying to romanticize the natural world. But in a sense, they're not wrong. There is a whole trend in the ascetical tradition of the early church, figures like Evagrius, uh, Ponticus and others. Um, and Clement of Alexandria before him, who spoke about natural contemplation, and this is something that they're deriving from the scriptures, from the Psalms, where you can look upon uh, the world in its uh, beauty and the way that it's been ordered and arranged, and contemplate the glory of God the Creator. And you know, Clement gives a wonderful um, analogy of um the laws of God, who is Jesus playfully running through the cosmos and arranging it in such a beautiful way. Because, of course, as Christians, we believe it's through the sun, who later takes on flesh, human flesh, as Jesus Christ, that the universe is created and redeemed. And so, you know, in a sense, if we were to have these things in mind already, but usually we don't unless we're reared in a city to begin with, we could go out to nature and look upon the starry canopy and, and contemplate, the, the reality for Christians, which is that our Lord Jesus Christ arranged it in such a way mm. and arranged it in such a way to point to his glory and will lead us beyond even the glories of heaven, glories in inverted commas, of, of the starry canopy, let's say, to be with him forever and ever one day. You know, yeah. so they're, they're, you're right. You're right. But it's, there's a whole strand of that in um, the ascetical uh, tradition of East and West.
1: So here's my conclusion, Mario. My my Jonathan Cole's grand conclusion, and then you can make some final remarks. Doesn't you? Don't have to agree with me, by the way. Uh, I think the the modern city is a testament to man because it's it's built by man, and everywhere you look, the man made usually not always, but usually dominates the natural. Uh, environment you see a little bit of grass sticking up on the side of the footpath amidst all the concrete and roads and and houses and so this I think actually directs your attention away from from God and the divine however in our contemporary cities certainly in those in uh, that were in ostensibly Christian, uh nations thanks to our ancestors we have these sacred spaces which are man-made but were made for the purpose of humans worshiping the transcendent uh god and they still exist in our city even though they're a little hard to find now and they're a little they can be overshadowed by big buildings some of them sadly are sort of abandoned and derelict but plenty of them are, are functioning and thriving And to your experience, Mario, there are communities of people around these churches that have retained some very ancient practices with the feasts and fasting at Lent and the liturgy or worship service or even just singing hymns. If you're in a Protestant church, if you're singing those nice old hymns, then you're singing songs that generations of Christians have sung uh, in churches all over the world. And so although you have to do a bit of work and it's hard for Christians to kind of go out and get people to notice <laughs> these spaces and invite them and welcome them in, it is possible to bridge this problem and encounter God in your physical experience in places of worship with other uh other Christians. That's my my conclusion. And so, in a, in a way, it sounds like a very negative story, but there is there is a positive here because there's, there's a danger of talking about the 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 lost symbolic role of the city as though it's completely dead. But it's not completely dead. There are there are hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of churches in Australia. Most of them actually in our big cities. That's right. And they're functioning. They're operating. They have communities of, of people. And you, you can meet not just the, the sacred there, but the ancient. Yeah. You can commune with with very ancient ancestors. It's not exactly the same, but you, are, you stand in a tradition. That's right. You know, the Eucharist has been performed for centuries all over the world.
0: It, the Eucharist, which is the high point of the Christian experience, It's our participation in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's there. He's there. He's present in his churches. He's beyond these churches as well, but he's present emphatically there because when we enter that space, we cross that liminal threshold between our hectic uh, lives navigating the labyrinth of the modern city and all of its various uh, distractions and inconveniences like traffic and everything else and its symbols which are, you know, keep luring us away to McDonald's. And we enter a space where, um, which has been refined, as you say, through generations of practice and worship. And this worship is not just on our end to the Lord. The Lord invites us into these spaces for worship. And his saints um, entreat him on our behalf that we might go to these places of worship. So I agree with you. We have um, the possibility providentially to have this imminent encounter with the transcendent, but that's an abstract uh, term. I, I like to to put a face to that always as, as the Lord Jesus. And so I agree with you 100%, and I hope that um, this uh, podcast that uh, I've had such an honor and, and pleasure to participate in, uh, your invitation and that your kind encouragement. I hope it acts as a, a bit of an inspiration uh, to, our, to our fellow Christians to want to visit a place of worship and to worship Jesus and also to non-Christians as well in this season now of Great Lent as we journey towards the death and resurrection of our Lord.
1: And, and in an age where pe- people feel the purposelessness and the yeah. Are dissatisfied with the material and are yearning clearly if you look at the the way the anzac uh civil religion has been growing they're they're yearning for some kind of spiritual experience that can provide meaning and purpose in their their lives and although it has perhaps a bit of a reputation problem at the moment the there are plenty of places where you can encounter that in a in a pretty profound Uh, way that is much more ancient than Anzac Day and a little more optimistic as well if I may say so but Mario thank you so much for engaging in this conversation with me and for your work it's really I found it fascinating thinking about our modern existence in in cities and the role of the sacred and religion and ancient cities so thanks so much for coming on and sharing your vast knowledge of this topic
0: thank you jonathan it was a pleasure thanks so much
1: well just before i sign off folks if you enjoyed the conversation be sure to give the podcast a five-star rating on apple and or spotify spotify i've done this so many episodes now spotify uh you can subscribe and or follow depending on what language you use we've got a kind of diglossia going there just to put an unnecessarily arcane linguistic term on something (laughs) that doesn't deserve that level of uh, uh, articulation. Thanks to my producer, Angelo Groza, and I'll catch you next time.